Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of Philippians, our sermon text today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And our custom here is that we stand for the reading of God's word, so I'll ask that you do just that if you're able to do so. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Give ear to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Well, we have been in August going through kind of a, a brief mini-series, I guess you could call it. And We're not going through the entire book of Philippians. We're kind of, I've been picking texts throughout the book here and there as we come up to chapter 3. So we're not going verse by verse through the whole book, as is our normal custom, uh, but going through these select passages one at a time. Now, I know Our Lady studied Philippians a while back. I forget how long it's been since you all went through that in the Women's Bible Study. Many of you have probably read Philippians, studied through Philippians, maybe heard it preached before. If you're familiar with that book, you might know that that Philippians is often referred to as what? As the epistle of joy. Joy is the theme, or it's one of the recurring themes throughout the book. In fact, uh, Paul uses the verb form of the word, you know, the word rejoice, uh, in this letter nine times in four chapters. It's a pretty short letter as far as Paul's, you know, Romans is 16 chapters long, Philippians is only four chapters long. And yet he speaks of rejoicing nine times in its four chapters. Add to that the times he uses the noun form. I know this sounds like a grammar lesson, right? School's not supposed to be until tomorrow. But the noun form of the word, in other words, the word joy. He uses the word joy at least five times in four chapters. So think about that. Four chapters, four rather short, relatively speaking, chapters in Philippians. And Paul speaks of joy or rejoicing at least 14 times. And that's just when he uses the words. The concept runs throughout. Um, so it's, that, that should get our attention. When somebody repeats themselves that often in that short of a space, he must be trying to get our attention. Now, it's often been rightly said that joy, real Christian joy, not its counterfeits, uh, the kind of joy that Paul exhorts you and I to have 
and to demonstrate is a lot different than happiness. Happiness is often uh, normally based on what? What's happiness based upon? Your outward circumstances. In fact, the word itself is it kind of it has roots or, or similarities to the word happening. So it depends on what happens to you, whether or not, in a lot of ways, whether or not you are actually happy. But joy, joy is not based on outward circumstance. Happiness is, it seems like it's always contingent upon and at the mercy of our circumstances. You might be having a great day. You might be as happy as you've ever been, and all of a sudden, it turns on a dime. Your circumstances change, what happens in your life changes, and all of a sudden, your happiness is gone. But not so with joy, with Christian joy. In fact, you might remember, we said it last week, where was Paul, the Apostle Paul, where was Paul when he wrote this letter? I'll give you a hint. This is one of his prison epistles. I don't know about you, but if I were in prison, I don't think I would be a very happy uh, happy person. And, and, you know, Paul, what was he in prison for? Did he commit a crime? An actual legitimate crime? No, he was in prison for preaching the gospel. You know, the the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the cross of Christ, uh, very often were his own people, the Jews that followed him around from place to place and stirred up trouble, if you read the book of Acts, everywhere Paul went, God worked, people came to Christ, churches were founded, and everywhere Paul went, persecution followed him and chased him away to the point where he finally was, was put in prison multiple times. He was beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, all these things he talks about in his letters and in the book of Acts are described. Paul suffered all those things for Christ, and yet Paul rejoiced. Paul still had joy, and Paul wanted the Philippians to keep on sharing in that joy. Paul rejoiced, and he spends a lot of this book, as we're going to see, a lot of the book of Philippians, teaching us and teaching the Philippian Christians to rejoice in the Lord. That's the first thing he says in our text, is to rejoice. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, the first thing that you might have seen in the passage as we were reading it is that Paul kind of tells us that we have to guard our joy. We have to guard our joy in Christ. We have to be on the lookout for joy thieves. And they might not be the things or the people that you might expect. In verse 1 of our text, what does he say? He tells us to rejoice in the Lord. Now, if he stopped there, if I were to ask you what does that mean, we might have a whole bunch of different answers. You might think of, well, singing. That, that certainly is part of rejoicing or can be a part of rejoicing. But it's not really what he talks about here in this particular text. And it might seem like a non sequitur, like something that doesn't follow what he just said. He speaks about rejoicing in the Lord, and then all of a sudden he says to look out. And he says it three times. He's saying, watch, watch out, look out, look out, look out. Three times he repeats it to get our attention there. Now, some people look at that and they say, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting older now and I'm easily distracted. I even distract myself. Sometimes if you're ever talking to me, I'll be starting to say something, Another thought will pop into my head somehow, or you know, I see I see a bird fly by, and all of a sudden I'm on a different subject, and I forget where I was going. You ever had that happen? You haven't, but I certainly have. You probably have had me. You probably have seen me do that. And they say, you know, Paul was talking about rejoicing in the Lord, and all of a sudden he's talking about watch out for these guys over here, watch out for these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, the you know, these evil doers. And then in chapter four, verse four, it's all it's like Paul caught himself. What was I talking about? You know, rejoice in the Lord. And people say, well, Paul, Paul got on a sidetrack, a good sidetrack, an important sidetrack. It's in Scripture. It's there for a reason. 
But, you know, maybe Paul was getting kind of old like me and his mind wasn't, you know, quite where it should have been. And so people think that, that this whole section from, from chapter 3, verse 2, uh, all the way to chapter 4, verse 3, is a kind of a, a, a holy sidetrack. A good, a, an important sidetrack, but not part of his original thought. Um, I don't believe that's the case at all, actually. I believe everything he writes, and uh, granted my sermon text this morning doesn't go through to chapter 4, it's only the first 11 verses of, of chapter 3, uh, but I believe he's very much on track and very much still on the same subject, and there's a very good reason he brings up the things he does in verses 1 through 11. And why do I say that? I say that because the very thing that those false teachers, he calls them dogs, uh, were tempting the Philippians to do was to rejoice or put their confidence in something other than Christ. They were a danger to the joy of, of the Philippians, their joy in Christ. Those who twist and pervert the message of the gospel are the real joy thieves. They were the ones they had to be watched out for. Those false teachers that Paul deals with here in Philippians uh, were most likely, they called them Judaizers. Now that's not something we have to deal with, I don't think, very much in our day. But what were the Judaizers? What did they teach uh, that was so wrong? Well, they, they, they basically taught that you had to become a Jew if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew. They taught that you had to kind of become Jewish first in order to become a Christian. And so, you know, the gospel, as we see in the book of Acts and Philippians, the Philippians were in a Gentile part of the world. They were in Asia Minor. And Paul went there and preached the gospel. And many of these former pagan Gentiles came to Christ and so people came along behind Paul and were saying, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, you know, this is all great, but, you know, you've got to get through the front door. You, you don't come, there's no side door. You come through the front door and you become a Jew first. If you're a male, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow all these old practices and old uh, ceremonies and things. Um, and so what they really were doing was telling people that they had to become Jews first and follow all these, these Old Testament, uh, you know, the ceremonial law and, and probably some man-made rules on top of that. And so what, what is this? It's, you, you may say to yourself, Pastor, why do I have to know this? I'm never going to meet a Judaizer. You, you will probably never meet, you probably have never met one. But what were the Judaizers at heart? If you, if you uh, to use my phrase, Robin always tells me I use over, overly much. If you boil it down, if you boil down what the Judaizers were about, what were they? They were legalists. What, what is the thing that's going to rob Christian joy from you more than legalism creeping into your thought? Legalism is the ultimate joy thief in this text that Paul is dealing with. Legalism, now that's a tricky word too. Legalism is a tricky concept to, to rightly define. We all have an idea in our head. When I say legalism, I, I bet if I were to ask 15 of you, I'd get 13 different answers of what legalism is or what it looks like or who it might look like. You know, you might suppose that legalism is about rule keeping. It's probably something to that. But would that be an accurate definition of legalism? Is legalism is rule keeping legalism? If someone has rules and follows the rules, does that make them a legalist? I certainly hope not. Um, it's not just about rule keeping. You know, if it's about rule keeping, what about the Ten Commandments? Isn't a rule? Isn't a commandment a rule? What's a rule? Something you're supposed to do. Something you have to do. Something that sometimes, if you don't do, there's there's consequences for it. Um, in fact, uh, God's commandments are rules, and, and that means rules can't be all bad. 1 John 5.3 tells us this. 1 John 5.3. John writes, For this is the love of God. And then what does he say? That we keep his commandments. 
and His commandments are not burdensome. Can you love God without keeping His commandments? Not a trick question. The answer is no. Loving God is not just about having fuzzy feelings about God. Nothing wrong with feelings, but if you know fuzzy feelings and worship experiences and things don't involve keeping God's commandments, we really can't honestly say that we love God at all. In fact, Jesus Christ himself says in John 14, 15, if you love me, what? If you love me, keep my commandments. Is Jesus a legalist? I guess he is. He wants us to keep his commandments. How legalist is, is Jesus, right? No, of course not. Jesus is not a legalist. Love and legalism cannot go together. They are mutually exclusive, but love and rules can, in some ways, must go together. Love and rules are not mutually exclusive. Husbands, you husbands here, if you love your wives, right? If you love your wives, are there rules involved in loving your wives? You bet there are. You wouldn't still be married if you didn't know about those rules and follow them. Wives, you know, wives, is the same thing not true for you? If you love your husband, are there not some rules? Maybe more simple rules, right? Are there some rules that you have to sort of so-called keep uh, to sustain and protect your your marriage to your husband? Legalism involves very often the outward keeping of rules, often man-made rules, rules that are added on top of Scripture that don't belong. And and those that keeping of the outward rules is is often uh, in legalism anyway. It's in order to attain or maintain a right standing before God. Follow these rules and you're right with God. Don't follow these rules and you're on you're on the outs. Uh, you're not right with God. It's a it's a, a pseudo righteousness. It's a false righteousness. Um, and you know when it rears its ugly head in the form of a false gospel, like it did here in Philippi, uh, it, it shows up as a form of self righteousness or self salvation. In other words, it's a it's a subtle form of trying to save yourself by your works. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. Now, unlike Galatians, remember Galatians, they were falling for a false gospel. And so Paul launched right into a, you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing. He said, what's wrong with you people? Who has bewitched you, he says, that you're following some other gospel that's not really a gospel at all? Well, here in Philippi, they weren't falling for it. But that didn't mean that Paul could just, you know, I don't have to tell them about it. What does Paul say? Paul reminds them again. He says, rejoice in the Lord and look out for these guys. Watch out for this false gospel. Watch watch out for these people that come around perverting and distorting the gospel of Christ because there is no such thing as salvation by works. Every religion under the sun throughout human history from the beginning of time till the very last day, every false religion, even false religions that call themselves Christian false religions, uh, are can be summed up in one thing. And that's trying to save yourself by your works. And make no mistake, the Judaizers were a Christian, in name at least, uh, it's a, it was a Christian cult. They were a group of, of, of people that called themselves Christians and taught false doctrine and taught a false way of, of salvation. And so Paul, you know, maybe you read verse, verse 2 and said to yourself, man, Paul is really harsh. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be welcome in many pulpits today. He's not very nice. He calls these people dogs, evildoers. The, the, the mutilation is really what he calls them, or the concision. Uh, but what did Paul do when Paul saw false teaching, especially a false gospel? He didn't mince words. He didn't mess around. He was quick to warn 
God's people against it, showing us that, you know, it may not seem like a bad, like so, such a bad thing, but Paul kind of weeds through everything and says, look, it's a false gospel. It's trying to, they're trying to teach you and tempt you to put your trust, your confidence before God in your own status, your own attainments, your own, even your own heritage. But that's, that's not the right way. That's, that's, um, yeah, it's, it's a much more serious thing than we tend to think. We tend to take doctrine, I think, sometimes very lightly, but doctrine matters, especially when it touches on the gospel. James Boyce rightly points out in his commentary on Philippians that verses 1 through 3, and I think the whole passage, he says that, that this passage suggests to us, quote, that joy is founded to a very large degree on sound doctrine. You ever think about that? It's not doctrine alone, but doctrine matters. And believing false doctrine uh, can be a very dangerous thing, and it can certainly rob us of our joy. So Paul Paul tells them, watch out, be on the lookout for these types. Now, uh, this leads us to the, the true spiritual joy of the true Christian. And what does Paul tell them in verse 3? Paul, Paul talks about these Judaizers, the false teachers. Then he turns his attention back to the Philippians, and he says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What's he saying? He's saying the Judaizers, they, they think they're the real, quote-unquote, the, the real Jews, so to speak. But guess what? You you formerly pagan Gentile believers, guess who the real Jew is here? You! You don't have to jump through these hoops. They, they aren't the real Jews. You are. He says, we, we are the circumcision. In other words, they tried to say to them, you have to get circumcised to be right with the Lord. And he says, no, 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 no. They're, they may be outwardly circumcised. They're not really circumcised in the heart as we're meant to be. You actually are. And the scripture says elsewhere, Paul writes, that the real, the true sons of Abraham are those, whether they be Jew or Gentile, who are of the faith of Abraham. Faith in Christ is the is the secret to that. And those who have faith in Christ are the real heirs according to the promise that God gave to Abraham. Paul says that in Galatians 3, verses 7 to 9. Who are the ones who are the real fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham? Remember the promise to Abraham? He said, you know, go outside, look up at the stars. Now, depending where you live, that might not be a hard task to count the stars. If you live down the hill, you might see three, you know. But if, if you live in Ramona on a clear night, you look up, good luck. Well, that's that's what he was telling Abraham. You're going to have so many offspring, you literally cannot count them. And, you know, we could say to ourselves, well, Israel was a big nation, and, you know, we might be able to count them now. No, that, that wasn't it. The promise was of the spiritual, ultimately, was of the spiritual heritage and posterity. His children, remember the, when you were kids, maybe some of you grew up, I won't sing it, but, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and you kick your youth worker in the leg, and he doesn't want to volunteer anymore. That's what happened to me. But it says, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's good theology for a kid's song. Uh, and, and that, you know, when you read Revelation in chapter 7, it says there's a great multitude in heaven that no man can count. Revelation is showing you the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, and that promise to Abraham ultimately is fulfilled, first in Christ, but secondly, through every believer that will ever come to Christ in the history of the world, is a child, so to speak, child of God first and foremost, but a child of Abraham and an heir according to the promise. Now, Paul in verse 3 gives us, I think, a very good description of what a true Christian is. Now, if you're going to have true Christian joy, well, the first thing you have to be is a Christian. 
How do you know if you're a Christian? Well, Paul gives the real definition, I think a helpful definition here in verse 3. It's characterized by at least three things. And this is in direct opposition to the Judaizers, right? He characterized them by three different things, by dogs, mutilators of the flesh, evildoers. And now he characterizes Christians, real Christians, by three things at least. First, he says that real Christians are those who, quote, worship by the Spirit of God. Does that mean we all have to be Pentecostals? I don't think that's what he is saying. Um, What's he saying there? He's saying that we don't worship God merely by the outward ritual, even those prescribed for a time and for for a time and for a purpose in the Old Testament. Uh, We worship uh, through Christ now. And so all those Old Testament rituals and the, the ceremonial law, those things have been fulfilled in and by Christ, particularly by his death and resurrection. There's a reason you might have noticed if you maybe you're new here. We haven't we don't do animal sacrifices here. There's a reason for that. There's lots of reasons for that. You might get closed, you know. But but those things have been fulfilled by Christ. Read the book of Hebrews sometimes. You know, there, there's no more shedding of blood. You know, once Christ died once for all for the sins of many, there is no more sacrifice for sin. So we no longer do those things. But so we worship by the Spirit of God. Um, now that Christ has come and fulfilled all those types and shadows of the Mosaic Law, we no longer uh, follow those things in our worship. We worship by means of the Holy Spirit within us, who indwells every believer so that we can believe and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. We wor- if you're a Christian, you worship by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, you don't really worship at all. And the Spirit of God works in a lot of ways Inwardly, not just through outward forms and rituals. Secondly, true Christians, he says, quote, glory in Christ Jesus. This might be the most important one. To worship by the Spirit means you're born again and you're worshiping by the power of the Spirit. The second thing is to glory in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? Why does Paul even bring that up? That we glory in Christ Jesus. We look to Jesus alone as our Savior, our only boasting or glorying uh, when it comes to our salvation, is that we boast in Christ. We don't say, you know, I'm saved because I do X, Y, and Z. That's what the Jew, that's what legalists do. They say, I'm, I'm right with God because I do X, Y, and Z. Or because I'm of the right heritage. I go to the right church. Don't go to the wrong church, but going to the right church doesn't get you into heaven. Right? Jesus, being in Christ, gets you into heaven. Being in the church, the body of Christ, is what qualifies you for for heaven. We're, to glory in Christ Jesus means that you're saved by what? Grace. By the grace of God alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. Third, the third thing he mentions, this is kind of the flip side of glorying in Christ, or the reverse of it. He says, the Christians put what? Put no confidence in the flesh. It's, it's really an either-or thing. You either glory in Christ Jesus, or you put confidence in the flesh. It's not both. It can't, it's, the, the two things are mutually exclusive. You're either confident in you, which I don't recommend, or you're confident in Christ. And there's all the difference in the world and in salvation between those two things. You either boast in Christ and glory in him alone as your savior from sin, or you glory in your own attainments. And so boast, really what you do then is you're boasting in yourself. You're boasting in yourself as if you were your own savior. That's, that's really what the matter boils down to here in this passage. Is, so I asked this morning, is Paul, in verse 3, is Paul describing you? Not verse 2. In verse 3, is Paul describing you? Are you a believer in Christ? Do you worship God by the Holy Spirit? 
Do you glory and boast in nothing except Christ alone as your Savior from sin? Or are you putting your confidence and so your hope of heaven in the flesh, in your own attainment, heritage, or works? Who is your Savior? You or Jesus is another way of putting that. Paul reminds us here that uh, if there were ever anyone who could have been saved by works, it would have been Paul or Saul back in the old days. It's really what he says there in verses 4 through 6 where he writes, he says, Though I myself uh, have reason for confidence in the flesh. He uses that phrase three times in these two verses. Uh, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone could have put confidence in the flesh for salvation, it would have been Paul. In fact, before he knew Christ, it's exactly what he did. He boasted of his own attainments, his own accomplishments. He put his faith, basically, in his own works prior to his conversion to Christ. He put his trust, his pride, his glorying in his in his heritage, both his uh, religious, national, and even ethnic heritage. He was a, if I can twist the word a little bit, you know, a Jew's Jew. If, there was never a man more Jewish than Paul, Paul is saying. If you have to be a Jew to get into heaven, if you have to be a Jew to be a Christian, well, it doesn't get much more Jewish than me, Paul is saying. And yet, I wasn't saved by that. I was saved, Paul is telling us, by Christ. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day, as the law required, back in Genesis 17, 12. Remember, God told Paul, the Lord told uh, Paul, excuse me, Abraham, uh, that, that everyone in their household at eight days old was to be circumcised, every male child. He was an Israelite by birth. Uh, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew his heritage. He knew what tribe he was from. He wasn't guessing. He knew his, his, his uh, pedigree. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, if any man could ever have been made right with God and been in a right standing before the Lord, based on his Jewish heritage, it would have been Saul or Paul. Not only his heritage, but also his attainments, his religious attainments, his moral attainments, he speaks of as well. For he says, as to the law, as to the law, a Pharisee. You want to get legalistic? You want to get about the law? Well, I was a Pharisee. It doesn't get much more legally minded than that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I mean, Paul, before Christ stopped him on the Damascus Road, thought he was serving God by attacking the church. Remember when Stephen, in the book of Acts, the, the, one of the first deacons, uh, we say, was stoned to death for his witness to Christ? It says there, and there was a young man named Saul, you know, kind of guarding the cloaks. He was the coat man. He was holding everybody's garments. You, know, you take your jacket off. You can't stone somebody with your jacket on. Paul was the coat man. Paul's like, let me hold that for you while you kill that guy by hitting him with rocks. And it says he was assenting, nodding his head to their death. Paul thought in his old days, before his conversion, killing Christians was grand. They're heretics. They're evil. I'm going to get rid of them. Until Christ stopped him on that Damascus road, and he realized that he wasn't serving God at all in doing that. Paul was a Pharisee. He was an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. I think that came in handy after his conversion when he finally understood them rightly for the first time. He was exceedingly zealous in his religious practice. Now, Paul didn't just show up Easter and Christmas, so to speak. Paul didn't even just show up. Paul was at work. Paul came. Paul was serious about his religion, and yet those things actually kept him from Christ before he came 
to Christ. Not only that, but he was a very moral and upright man, at least outwardly. He was no hypocrite. He says he was blameless, quote, blameless, as to the law, as to his outward conduct. If you had known Paul, now if you were a Christian, you would have been terrified of him at the time when he was Saul, but you would have thought he was a very upright, upstanding, moral man. He wasn't some, you know, wicked sinner in all of his outward conduct, and yet, did Paul put his confidence in those things? No, in fact, quite the opposite. And that brings us to what Paul tells us about the source of true Christian joy, which he talks about in verses 7 through 11. There he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may, be, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, his heritage, his attainments, before he came to Christ, those things, he says, were gain to him. What does that mean? And that means he put his confidence in them. You know, he had, you know, he had, you ever read a list? If you're going to make a decision, you have pros and cons. Well, well, his, the things that were in his pro column, his gain column, the things that he hung his hat on, uh, those were the things he put his confidence in in the old days in order that he might have a right standing before God. But he found out later on that that wasn't right. Once he came to know Jesus Christ, all of those things became as loss. Not only that, but he counted, he says in verse 8, everything as loss compared to Christ. Nothing compares to knowing Christ. Nothing. Now think about this. You know, in our day, unfortunately, in in many churches, uh, many many pulpits, you you don't hear much about repentance. Uh, the, the apostles preach repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. The prophets certainly preached repentance. Jesus himself preached a message of repentance. Now, Paul, Paul's saying in this in this text, this, these verses, he didn't just repent of it. He did repent of his sins, but he didn't just repent of his sins when he came to Christ. Although he certainly did that, he also repented of his self righteousness. Now, I know that's a sin, but what I'm saying is, he kind of turned his back on the good things about himself too. It's and it's really something amazing to think about. He turned his back on his sin, but he also turned his back on his, on what he used to think was his righteousness. The good, his own attainments were things he had to repent of, thinking of as his attainments. He had to turn his back on self righteousness, seeking to save himself by his own works and his own merits. The very things he used to to boast about and place his confidence in, he now saw those as bad things, as loss. He didn't just turn from his bad things, he turned from his good things as well, because he had Christ who was far better. His gain, think of his gain formerly as his kind of his resume of self-righteousness. And what did he now say about those things in verse 8? He says he counts the things he used to count on, now he considers them as rubbish, the ESV says. Now if you have a King James, or if you're familiar with the King James, he says they're counted as dung. There's all kinds of words you can substitute for that, but I won't do that here in your presence this morning. But you know, think about what he's talking about here. 
He's saying all the things that I used to count upon in my own life, my religious heritage, my religious and moral attainments, the things I used to say, that's going to get me in the door of heaven. Paul, Paul thought so badly of those things now as if they were dung, as if they were excrement. The kind of thing that if you're walking down the path and it's in your path, you step away from it. You don't pick it up and put it in your pocket and save it for a rainy day. He says, those things are bad. They're dung. They're nothing. They're less than nothing. I want nothing to do with those things anymore, is what Paul is what Paul says there. All that mattered now to Paul, he says, and all that he wanted to matter to the Philippians was knowing Christ and, quote, verse 9, being found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that came from the law, from what he did, but that, he says in verse 9, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, true righteousness, the kind of righteousness that you need, perfect righteousness that you need to stand before a holy God, doesn't come from your own works. It doesn't come from the law. Where does it come from? He says it right there, from God. It's a gift of God. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, By the works of the law, no one or no flesh will be justified. No one. It's an impossible... The law was not given to justify you. The law was given to the Israelites. The Ten Commandments was given because God had saved them. Not as a means of saving them. He saved them. He delivered them from Egypt. And he says, therefore, now live this way. Legalists turn that on its head and say, live this way and God will save you. And Paul says, no, that's not why God gave the law in the first place. The law, if anything, the law reveals our sin. By the law is the knowledge that the law shows you that you need Christ. And Paul, even Paul, the expert, quote-unquote, in the law, didn't know that until Christ stopped him on that Damascus road. So where does true righteousness come from? It comes through, what does he say? Through faith in Christ and from God. If you're here this morning and you would be saved and justified before a holy God you must have a God-given righteousness. Not one that you can gin up on your own, but one that comes from God. It's a gift of God. And not just any righteousness, perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ accounted to you by faith. That's why Paul speaks here of wanting to be, only to be, quote, found, verse 9, found in him. All Paul cared about was being found to be in Christ. Because being found in Christ means you have the righteousness of Christ accounted to you. You're accepted by a holy God if you're in Christ by faith. That's the way of salvation. So this morning I have to ask again, are you in Christ? Are you going to be found in Him on that last day or will you be found vainly trying to stand before a holy God based on your own works, clothed in nothing but your own self-righteousness? Isaiah 64, 6 says that our own righteousness or our own righteous deeds, what does it call it? King James says, filthy rags. So dung, filthy rags. Maybe Paul had that verse in mind when he thought about when he was writing Philippians chapter 3. You know, whose righteousness are you going to be standing in on the day of judgment? Your own? I hope not. Or Christ's. Only Christ's will stand. But there's more than that. You know, as, as important as justification, forgiveness, and acceptance by God is... Uh, Paul, there was more to it. He also wanted, he says in verses 10 to 11, to know him, to know Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Now, knowing, when he says knowing, he's not just saying a head knowledge. He's not just saying knowing about them. He wants to, to know them, to experience them. He wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. 
And then he says he wants to share in his sufferings, becoming like him, like Christ, in his death, that by any means possible he might, quote, attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice how many times, through the use of pronouns, here comes the grammar again, that he, he points us back to Christ. He wants to, what, know him and the power of his, he doesn't just say the power of the resurrection, the power of Christ's resurrection to share what? Not just share suffering, to share his sufferings. Paul saw his own sufferings for the gospel, his imprisonment, his beatings, his being stoned, all these things, not just as suffering for Christ, which it was, but somehow sharing in Christ's sufferings. He saw it as, as Christ being at work in his life. That's some kind of perspective on, on your sufferings, I think. And he says he wants to attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul treasured knowing Christ so much that he didn't just want to be justified in him, but he wanted to be sanctified as well. He wanted to be sharing in the power of Christ's resurrection life and even sharing his sufferings. He even says becoming like him in his death. Think about that. Paul, All Paul cared about was knowing Christ and being like Christ because he wanted to be found in Christ. And if that meant suffering for Christ, he was fine with that. He was so wanting to be conformed to Christ that if he, if he died the same way as Christ, he was content with that because it was something like his Savior had experienced. He wanted to become like him in his death. Paul wanted to die to sin to such a great degree that it would be as if he were already in his glorified state in heaven. That's what he's talking about when he says attaining the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to live in the here and now as if he were already in heaven, which means perfect holiness. Was Paul sinless? No. Paul, Romans 7, why do I do what I don't want to do? That's Paul talking as a Christian. That's you and I, if we're honest, talking as a Christian in this life. Paul's goal was, which he talks about in chapter 4 when he says press on to the goal, was, was the, you know, what is the end state of a Christian? What is your final goal? What is the thing that God has set his sights on you in Christ and put his purposes in Christ upon you? What is going to happen to you on the last day? It's a fancy theological word, glorification. Right now, if you're in Christ, you are justified, period. You are as justified before a holy God as you will ever be. You don't grow in justification because you're justified in Christ. And he is perfect before his Father. Uh, your sanctification is growing. You, you're not what you used to be, but God's also not done with you yet. What is we, we say the first sermon we looked at, the first text we looked at in Philippians was Philippians 1, 6, when Paul says, He who began a good work in you will do what? Carry it on to completion. Not halfway, not three-quarters of the way, to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what he starts in you. If you're a Christian, God started something in you, and he is presently working in you to sanctify, to make you holy, more and more holy. But I believe it was Thomas Watson, the, the Puritan writer, that said that uh, sanctification, God's work in you, where he's making you more like Christ in this life, sanctification is glorification in seed form. In other words, that's, it's the beginnings of what's going to be perfected someday. One day after the resurrection, when you're in heaven with the Lord forever, you will be perfectly sanctified and glorified and sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ. You will never again sin. You will never again be tempted to sin. You'll never again be vexed by the presence or power of sin in your life or anyone else's life with you in heaven. That's glorification. Paul Paul was so 
set on that, uh, that he tried, he did as best as he could uh, to work with uh, by the Holy Spirit in his life to put put to death the deeds of the body and to live a life that's pleasing in Christ. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He wanted basically whatever was his in Christ, he wanted as much of it as he could have right now. Glorification is 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 God's grace to you on the final day in heaven. Justification is is the gift of God. It's the act of God in in you in Christ. Sanctification is also part of your salvation. It's God's grace at work in your life, and so is glorification on that final day. Paul just wanted whatever was his in Christ. He didn't care about his own attainments anymore. He just wanted what was his and what is the birthright of of every Christian uh, in Christ is to have even glorification. Now, true confidence or boasting or rejoicing of a believer in Christ must always be found only in Christ. That's what he's talking about when he says in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. That's why he brings it back up in chapter 4, to rejoice in the Lord again. And so Paul's teaching us here that you and I have to turn away, turn our backs upon, maybe on a daily basis, all confidence in the flesh and watch out for any kind of teaching, even teaching that goes by the name of Christian teaching that would point you back to placing your confidence in the flesh that is in yourself rather than putting your confidence alone in Christ. The cure, the cure for all forms of legalism, just like the cure for all forms of licentiousness, you know, living however you feel like living, is always going to be rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want, if you want to be inoculated, if I can use that term, if you want to be cured from legalism and kept free from it, do what Paul says in verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your own heritage or attainments. The cure for legalism in all of its ugly forms and the cure for licentiousness is always rejoicing in Jesus Christ. For if you rejoice in him, you won't put any confidence in the flesh. It's one or the other. If you rejoice in Christ, you will not be content with anything less that is than what is yours in Christ by virtue of being united to him by faith. You will make being conformed to the image of Christ in all things as if you've already attained the resurrection of the dead. Your aim. That's not legalism. Effort is not legalism. Striving after God's calling in your life is not legalism. Rejoice in the Lord. No wonder Paul said that it was safe, verse 1, or a safeguard for us. That's why Paul repeats it again in chapter 4 where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, these letters, uh, like the epistle of of Paul to the Philippians, that uh, we thank you even for the fact that uh, we wouldn't have this letter, we wouldn't have this portion of scripture, had Paul not been suffering for the name of Christ. He had not been imprisoned for his faithfulness, his testimony to the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and been put in prison for that, we would not have this letter, this correspondence that he wrote to the church at Philippi. We thank you for that. We thank you for all that it teaches us about rejoicing in the Lord. We ask that you would work in us by your spirit. Give us grace to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ always, to put no confidence in the flesh, and to think on uh, and meditate upon much of what your word has to say about what we have in Christ, that nothing can beat that, nothing can beat being found in Christ, having the righteousness accounted of, of Christ accounted to us by faith, being standing justified before a holy, all-seeing God, because we stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ alone, not in our own filthy rags. Lord, we also thank you for sanctification. We thank you that you don't 
leave us in our sin. You don't leave your people enslaved to sin, but you break the power of sin over us. You begin in us that good work from the very first day of our conversion, and you carry it on to completion, making us more and more conformed to Christ's image uh, until the day of Christ. And we thank you that one day we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ. Your word says that we shall see him. When we see him, we shall be made like him because we will see him as he is. We will share. If we share in Christ's sufferings in this life, we will also share in his glory. We don't even know the beginning of what that might look like, Lord, but we thank you for it, that all of that from beginning to end is by your grace alone, through Christ your Son, our Savior alone. And we thank you for it. We pray that you would work in us, guard us against legalism, forgive us for the ways we've been tempted by it, and lean towards it. Keep us from legalism. Give us grace to rejoice in Jesus Christ always. And Lord, we pray that if anybody here this morning doesn't yet know you, if anybody here is still tempted or or presently putting their confidence in their own flesh and their own heritage or attainments, that you might open their eyes even today. Grant them faith in Christ and repentance that they too might learn the rest of their days to, to, to count nothing, to place no confidence in the flesh, but to rejoice in the Lord always. We lift all these things up to you in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.